We're finally going to do a t-shirt thing. Cool. Are you giving them out? We talked about that. I'm not sure we can do that. Like positive karma over the years or uh, (laughs) showing up to Salem? Uh, Maybe we can do that. I was thinking to current student athletes, we probably have some issue with that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I think years ago we wanted to do, uh, I made team of the week and all I got was a stupid (laughs) t-shirt. Yeah, you know how many t- that's like 25 t-shirts a week it's true it's true uh, i didn't even get I, this lousy i had to buy this lousy t-shirt right i was gonna say i made team of the week and because it's d3 i had to pay for this t-shirt football fans it's now time for the d3football.com around the nation podcast here are your hosts Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division Three football, largest division, and we have the largest playoff field in all of college football. We're a week away from that, but I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com. My co-host, Keith McMillan, has been here with the site since 1999, and, and uh, we take his Skype call and we give him an open microphone. Hey, is it time for me to talk already? I was just busy throwing the record books out the window. Uh, anyway, it's Rivalry Week, and I'm the podcast-friendly neighborhood Randolph-Macon alum. But before we ponder Week 11, we got a whole lot of Week 10 to deconstruct. Yeah, I'm not sure I have any uh, friendly Randolph-Macon alums in my neighborhood, but uh, you know, I'm a, a little bit further from Ashland than I used to be. Week 10 was a week, though, in which uh, conference titles, automatic bids were clinched. Plus, let's be honest, uh, highly ranked teams are not messing around this year. They are locked in. Consider this. Seven of the top eight teams combined for an average winning score of 51 to 6 on Saturday. That's uh, if you want to do the math. Uh, I'll just run it down for you. I got a pencil. Okay, good. 59 to 7, 42 7, 58 7, 55 7, 72 6, 51 7, and 23 nothing. Um, Keith, I was taking that as a good sign of focus. And in a lot of cases, that means the, the second stringers on these teams are preserving these great defensive performances as well and not allowing garbage time scores. It was really stark how the dominant teams dominated and how few surprises there were in the top 25 and among teams in the playoff picture. There were some eye-openers, like the one delivered by Case Western Reserve on Saturday and the third losses by uw Platteville and George Fox. Some years, the final weeks of the season get really chaotic with unexpected results and big clashes across the board. But this time around, it seemed like basically the strong got stronger. And if the fun this time of the year is focusing on who's punching tickets to the 32-team road to Salem, 15 more teams clinched automatic bids in Week 10, adding to the three who wrapped theirs up in Week 9. That means all but seven of the 25 automatic bids are in hand heading into the final Saturday of regular season games. One thing that's going to do is it's going to make it uh, a little bit easier for us to project a playoff bracket, and we will do that uh, Wednesday night, Thursday morning, after the NCAA releases its next set of regional rankings. But uh, of the seven, the seven that are remaining, uh, there are a couple of uh, couple of different kinds of situations. Uh, North Central controls its own destiny um, and should be able to do so easily. Johns Hopkins controls its own destiny and should be able to handle uh, its opponent as well. Uh, now, Washington and Lee... They control their own destiny, but uh, a bit of a tougher game. They play Shenandoah, and if that and if that happens, and Randolph Macon beats Hampton Sydney, then it's a four-way tie, and the Odak is all Odaki. Um, we'll discuss that if it happens, but it's actually not that difficult. Um, Delaware Valley controls its own destiny. Then again, Widener controls its own destiny in the MAC as well. They face each other head-to-head on Saturday. Midwest Conference has a uh, predetermined title game between Monmouth and Saint Norbert. In the Liberty League, Union RPI is the key game, but uh, for Union, 
Uh, all they can do is win the Dutchman's shoes um, and play spoiler for RPI by winning the game. They cannot win the conference automatic bid. If Union wins, Ithaca goes to the playoffs. And if RPI wins, then RPI goes because it beat Ithaca earlier in the season. And then, you know, usually the Liberty League or the ODAC is our most complicated conference. Uh, but this year it's the PAC. PAC is the President's Athletic Conference, an 11-team league where teams play just eight conference games. And uh, since Case Western Reserve and W&J don't play each other, you may have heard this before if you're a frequent listener to the podcast. Uh, they could both go undefeated. Uh, they're just one game away from doing that. Now, W&J did get the win it needed Saturday. Uh, not only its own win against Geneva, but also Bethany beat Grove City and swung the tiebreaker in the favor of the President. So if both Case and W&J win or I, I think also true if they both lose, uh, then W&J wins the automatic bid. Either way, the runner-up at 10-0 would be uh, basically a lock to get an at-large bid. And, and Keith, I can't hear you ansily, uh itching at your microphone, but I thought I'd give you an opportunity to talk for a second. Well, I, I think it's just a rare, fascinating case of two teams going into the final week with a chance to finish unde- undefeated, which is rare enough and special enough as it is. But for, for Case Western Reserve to be coming off this pretty dominant statement win on Saturday and to know going into um, next Saturday, it's got a huge game against Carnegie Mellon, which is 7-2, and two, and they need to win that game to get into the postseason. And if they don't win, you can go from 10-0 and 0 undefeated season, possible home game in the first round of the playoffs, to potentially completely out of the playoffs. Yeah, it's, it's like no pressure, you know. You've had a... Uh, Nine weeks, you've been great for nine weeks, but um, you have to finish strong. And uh, I think that's kind of what the criticism at sometimes have, has been of the, the D3 postseason as opposed to D1 where they'll say, well, the playoffs is the entire season because you can't lose. Well, Case Western's in that, in that uh, situation pretty much here in week 11, and we have automatic bids and uh and a 32 team playoff and all that too so still plenty of excitement heading into week 11 and uh for for w and j obviously they they need to win as well and i think for teams that are not uh that are on the bubble or or a little further away and and need a little help that's what you you know you root against case western reserve on saturday or you root for carnegie mellon um you hope W&J stumbles, and there are a few other scenarios, as you mentioned, the um, the CCIW where uh, Illinois Wesleyan right now looks really great in Pool C. If for some reason North Central were to stumble against Elmhurst and Illinois Wesleyan won, then they'd be in. You know, there, there are a bunch of scenarios like that, but I think the most likely one is is that Case Western uh, Carnegie Mellon game. So that's really one to, to keep an eye on this coming Saturday. Uh, Keith mentioned Pool C. Let's uh, if you're if you're new to the podcast or new to the playoffs, let's uh, revisit that playoff uh, that primer so you get an under. It's probably primer, isn't it? That's primer, isn't it? I always call the primer. Yeah, but I I think uh, whatever. I did not attend a one room schoolhouse. Anyway, twenty five conferences with automatic bids. We're not even going to uh, address what I was trying to go with there. Um, you may hear uh, occasionally hear of this group, the 25 conferences with automatic bids, as Pool A stands for automatics. You may also see them abbreviated as AQ, as an automatic qualifier. Um, those are both NCA terms. Basically, they're the teams that win automatic bids, like in many, many other 
NCAA playoffs. Two bids are set aside for teams that are not in those 25 conferences, and that's what's known as Pool B. And then the remaining five bids are our true at-large teams, and they are Pool C. Pool C bids rarely go to teams with more than one division loss, and it seems even more likely that that'll be the case this year. Uh, the NCAA has its own selection criteria, which do not include our top 25 poll, but do include results in games against Division Three opponents, uh, a strength of schedule calculation, head-to-head -head results, results against common opponents, uh, results against teams in the NCAA's regional rankings. Uh, regional ranking came out last Wednesday. You can find it on our site, and like I said earlier, another one will come out this Wednesday. The seven teams not automatically earning their way into the field are chosen by an eight-person national selection committee made up of two coaches, athletic directors, or conference commissioners from each region. These folks will also set the matchups and presumably seed the bracket uh, using the criteria mentioned uh, by Pat. Those are the basics, and now you're equipped to project, complain, or hope against all hope about the 32-team field. We'll be on D3 boards, on Twitter, and below articles on the site in the Discus comments discussing this all week and well into next week. Note that Keith said that the eight-person National Selection Committee is the one that sets the bracket and sets the matchups. It's not me and Keith. As much as we would love to have that uh, power and that responsibility, um, we would be glad to take the criticism that comes our way uh, based on the bracket, but we have no say in the bracket whatsoever. I just thought I should say that. Is it time for a break yet? I'm just going to not add anything because otherwise we, I could go down that uh, rabbit hole. <laughs> uh, that's true. That would be about a, a three to four minute aside. A couple of uh, injuries to note for uh, that uh, happened to playoff teams on Saturday, especially to quarterbacks. Uh, Brockport quarterback Joe Germaniero just got leveled late in the game versus Alfred, taken to a local hospital. Keith, did you see that hit? I did not. Um, uh, be sitting down when you do. Um, yeah, it was uh, for a, in a, in a one camera shoot like the Brockport uh, broadcast is, it's still impressive and a little bit scary. Uh, Lakeland quarterback Michael Whitley got a knee injury late in the first half of uh, his team's win against Concordia Chicago. Uh, neither of these uh, teams is going to necessarily need their guy this week. Both of them have clinched. Uh, Lakeland is playing Rockford. Brockport's playing St. Lawrence. But uh, Lakeland especially won't be much of a threat to even make it a game in the first round without its stud quarterback. Uh, he was hit just after he released the ball with about five minutes left in the first half on Saturday. Watching the video on that, he's on the turf. He's writhing in pain. He had to be helped off the field and uh, not uh, putting any weight on his left knee at all. So uh, it did not look good there. Uh, other guys who threw passes for uh, Lakeland on Saturday when it combined three for 17 with three interceptions. Yeah, for the biggest games in school history, in some cases in years, uh, one can only hope that these teams have their rosters as healthy as possible, especially when it comes to their star players when, uh, when the playoffs begin. There were a lot of games that happened Saturday in Week 10. We are actually not going to spend as much time going blow by blow through a lot of those games because we're you know, spinning ahead to Week 11 and to Week 12. So just kind of keep that in mind. Uh, and this week's edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by FanRays. Keith, I thought about FanRays quite a bit this week, actually. We're working on another project together with them that will tie in some of our other websites um, to bring in some feedback from a Division three student athlete uh, that uh, is going to, I think, 
result in some cool stuff. Uh, I also received a package with some of our merchandise. Very nice. But uh, here's the kicker. I also this week saw a tweet from a D3 coach telling people that they could order merchandise from that team's store using another service for the holidays. But that's a store that closes on November 15th. That's exactly the limited time problem that FanRaise avoids. A FanRaise store isn't just open for a couple weeks at a time. You leave it open and people can place their orders whenever. It doesn't have to be in this 9 or 10 day window. To set up your shop, go to thefanraise.com. That's T-H-E-F-A-N-R-A-I-S-E.com. Their online stores cost nothing to set up, never close, and have more than 125 unique pieces of merchandise to set up, apparel, and accessories. Fanraise will ship all orders directly to customers, so coaches never have to sort through a coordinated bulk order or worry about any of that stuff. You just set it up, and it, it's good to go. It uh, increases fundraising for teams through their profit share model. And again, let them know that the Around the Nation podcast sent you. We're up to the game ball segment of our podcast, and I'm going to give my game ball this week to Wittenberg quarterback Jake Kennedy. He's had a great season, and we haven't talked about him a whole lot, but on Saturday, Kennedy threw for 323 yards, ran for a 45-yard touchdown to get the scoring going, ended up with 52 yards rushing and a 42-23 win versus Ohio Wesleyan. This is the win that clinched the North Coast Athletic Conference automatic bid for the Tigers. Kennedy has thrown 22 touchdowns and just six interceptions this season, completing 61% of his passes, and if they're going to go deep, that will be a name that you will hear more often throughout the course of the next few weeks. Pat, I thought about ordering 751 imaginary game balls for each of the fans who sat through the Montclair State Rowan game and uh, 379 yards of combined offense at 3.5 yards per play that it produced. But that's just a cheap shot at a once great rivalry. Wait, so when you're ordering these uh, virtual imaginary game balls, do you have to order them one at a time? Do you have to go to an imaginary website or do you just like in your head imaginarily order the imaginary game balls? Well, the problem is this imaginary game ball website. It's only open until a certain amount of time, and um, I also <laughs> have to spend you, a lot of time it's shipping not a, it's and not on filling the boxes. <laughs> right. It so, I, I, if you know anyone that can help me out with that, though, uh, let me know. Uh, scroll back about a minute and thirty seconds. We might have something in this podcast for you. All right. So, for my actual game ball, I am going to stick with defense. Uh, Pacific Lutheran also once great. Uh, but with just two wins this season and coming off a demoralizing overtime defeat against National Power Linfield, played wonderfully on defense, keeping George Fox below 200 total yards and held the emerging Bruins to one of 14 on third and fourth down tries. The Lutes nearly sent a ripple through the top 25 last week, but one week later knocked a conference rival out of the top 25 with top-notch defense. That's game ball worthy. My team on the rise this week in the top 25 or in my top 25. In this case, I'm talking about UW-Whitewater and UW-Lacrosse. These are two teams that tie together nicely as uh, both come into the poll at the same time that UW-Platteville drops out. Uh, Whitewater isn't playing like a top 10 team, but you don't have to be playing like a top 10 team, let alone like Whitewater of old, to get back into the top 25. Warhawks have played four teams currently in the poll, and they've beaten one of them. 
Uh, plus, they haven't lost to anybody else. They belong here. They're ranked below the three teams they've lost to and above the team that they've beaten. Plus, uh, these guys have been on my ballot, back on my ballot ever since the win versus lacrosse a few weeks back. And, you know, now with uh, Whitewater beating Platteville and lacrosse continuing to win, also having beaten Platteville, it makes sense for both of them to slide in in the uh, 20 to 25 range. Yeah, I agree with you on, on UW-Whitewater. The losses are the numbers three. 11 and 19. The Warhawks case is all about schedule strength. At the other end of the spectrum, my riser is Case Western Reserve by virtue of that uh, 41 to 10 win against Westminster, Pennsylvania. That gives us a useful common opponent with which to evaluate the Spartans, who by now every podcast listener knows is not on Washington and Jefferson's schedule this season, despite being a pack rival. Wittenberg is also 9-0, like Case and W&J, and those three teams are responsible for Westminster's three losses. The Tigers beat the Titans 20-14 in Week 1, and the Presidents did it 34-33 in overtime in Week 8. So we're not comparing two 10-point wins and a 17-point win here. We're comparing two games that could have gone either way with a straight-up blowout. I think it would be irresponsible in the absence of other better data, and really the only thing better is head-to-head, to ignore this result and keep Wittenberg or W&J ahead of case on a particular top 25 ballot. Now, I read where one observer considers the week one result less impactful because teams evolve over the course of the season. Each voter is entitled to his or her opinion. And this is why we have 25 panelists for each person that sees it one way. Others might see something else. And the number of informed opinions in the top 25 poll tend to balance out. Case Western Reserve's strength of schedule is completely terrible, no denying. And but they've also beaten every opponent they've played by at least 17 points and all but one by by 20 or more. Uh, I thought it was the most informative result of the week, Pat, and it greatly reshaped the middle of my ballot. Yeah, you know, I guess you can put me on that list, too. I, I already had both teams ahead of Wittenberg, but even if I didn't, I wouldn't see flipping them automatically just uh, right now based on a game played back in week one. To me, that's just too long ago for me to use that as a definitive comparison. For my slider, it was perhaps a coincidental week, but also somewhat fortuitous for the poll and for the voters that both Platteville and George Fox lost. Obviously, that George Fox-Platteville result is also a week one result, but uh, some voters would have uh, had a decision to make if George Fox had won that game against Pacific Lutheran on Saturday, whether you're going to then drag George Fox under the uh, under the surface with uh, Platteville and knock them out of the top 25. What this doesn't do, Keith, is reckon Linfield, which is also tied pretty closely to George Fox. Yeah, fair point, but I think you have to view Linfield through the same prism with which we cracked the joke about Montclair State and Rowan. The Wildcats are offensively challenged this season, or growing, however you want to look at it. But the defense is legit. Only Mary Harden Baylor has put up more than 14 points on them. So as much as one might be swayed by the recent low scores, the 12-6 and the 23-0, and you probably have to be somewhat as a voter, I find myself believing in Linfield as well, just in a team that's going to go far as a defense will carry it. Uh, For an actual slider and not just a reply to your prompt, Adam Turr copped to in snap judgments. He copped to this, and I, and I will as well. You know, now is the, the time of the season when you take a look at the NESCAC team f- for top 25 votes. And uh, with Trinity's 28-20 loss to Amherst, the Bantams fell off my ballot, and uh, apparently others as well, leaving the isolated conference with six teams over 500, but no teams receiving top 25 votes. I'm always glad to consider a NESCAC team that plays a non-conference game. 
uh, that hasn't happened in the history of our poll. I'm also glad to consider a, a NESCAC team that runs the table at the end of the season. Uh, that used to be 8-0, now to be 9-0. I'm, I'm glad to look at them at that point, but not before. Uh, this Saturday, I was in New Ulm, Minnesota, a, a Division Three stadium with no grandstand, watching Martin Luther host Eureka. Eureka won the Upper Midwest Athletic Conference automatic bid, going away by a score of 63-26 over Martin Luther. I had a chance to chat with Eureka coach Kurt Barth after the game and before his 10-hour bus ride home. Exciting day for our program, uh, for our kids. Uh, you know, these guys have been through a lot. Uh, our seniors have been through a lot all four years, and then in particular this year, getting off to a, a slower than expected start. But uh, I'm proud of them and their leadership and the way they bounce back. And you know, not only a great day for them, our program, and really everybody that's ever suited up for for Eureka. Yeah, what's it like coming back to the program that you played for and then bringing them to a position where they're at now? Uh, it's been a blessing for me and my family. Just. Uh, yeah, I think everybody that gets into coaching, you know, maybe plans about going to their alma mater and getting an opportunity there. And, you know, fortunately, nine years ago, my opportunity came to, to go back and be the head coach. And uh, just uh, it's been phenomenal for my family and us since. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I can't say enough about it. It's just a great opportunity. I have to think that today you guys came out as expected on your first drive. And then Martin Luther answered, and it was really back and forth for that whole first 30 minutes. Yeah, they uh, you know they came out and got us uh, with a double move early on, and you know I, I don't know our guys I don't know if they got caught up in the moment where we were a little flat-footed early on uh, on defense. Offensively, we came out and executed very well for the most part, uh, but uh, you know that that happens. Uh, you know when you you have two big weeks, uh, you know the weeks before with Mac and uh, with Scalaska, and then a little bit of a road trip getting up here, but. Uh, you know, our guys bounce back, second half defense. We got a couple turnovers to start the second half, and we're able to kind of open it up a little bit. Uh, Lee Anthony Reasonover show a little bit again on offense. Uh, seven touchdowns left him one shy of the Division Three record for TDs in a game. Um, tell us a little bit more about, uh, I don't know if there's anything you would tell us we haven't heard already, but go ahead. Right. He's a workhorse. Uh, you know, he's put a lot of time and effort into it. Uh, you know, I, I'll go back to Lee Anthony's a phenomenal runner. I think you and I talked about that, Pat, before, that I believe he's the best kid in our program or that's ever been through there. And, you know, I certainly think he could play at a lot of a lot of schools outside of Eureka. When you look at smaller D3 and bigger D3, I think he fits just about anywhere. But, uh, you know, not only a testament to his ability, but our offensive line play and Wesley Burris, uh, our fullback, has really uh, done a nice job of open up the way as well. But, uh, you know, Lee Anthony's a kid. You just give him a give him a seam or a gap, and, and uh, he, he exploits that. You guys have a long drive home, and then you have a week off, and you don't know who you're playing for another week. Do you, what do you guys do? You guys go and, uh, like, uh, collect video on anybody within 500 miles or what? Well, I, I think first and foremost for us, we're going to, you know, get uh, get back home and, you know, kind of regroup next week. We'll get uh, some practice sessions in. You know, really the way we've been kind of participating or playing the last three weeks is just more so us focusing on getting better every day as ourselves. And, uh, you know, whoever we play, they're, they're going to be a great opponent. We know that. Uh, but, you know, we've got to be the, the best that we can be in order if we're going to be competitive. My hidden highlight for this week, Keith, is one that doesn't particularly show up in a box score and totally appropriate for the final weeks of the season, the, you know, the time of the year where programs honor their players on Senior Day. For St. Thomas, that happened this past week, and when you're winning 58-7, to as they were against Gustavus Adolphus on Saturday, you've got plenty of opportunities to get players in the game. But when one of them is your former star running back who hasn't been able to play in nearly a month because of injury, you have to hope to have the ball at the end and then get him on the field in the end in the victory formation. That did not work out for the Tommies on Saturday. They were on defense at the end of the game. So Glenn Caruso got Jordan Roberts in the game for the final play at safety so he could end his career on the field. 
Roberts was never the same after getting hurt in 2016, and it's sounding like he won't be on the postseason roster for St. Thomas. Keith, no doubt there were more instances like this in Division Three on Saturday, and there may be more this week, but uh, there was a particularly notable one in my mind since uh, that guy is a former D3Football.com Offensive Player of the Year. Absolutely. Longtime listeners or around-the-nation readers might remember my annual soliloquy about seniors playing their last game. Adam Turr handled that sentiment perfectly in this week's Snap Judgments, and Pat, you did as well. My Hidden Highlight features a couple seniors who salvaged their final game in front of a home crowd when it looked bleak and created a memory they'll probably cherish forever. We talked a lot about Westminster, Pennsylvania, but it was the one from Missouri, the Blue Jays, who pulled off Week 10's most dramatic turnaround win. With 33 seconds left in the game, Chase Abingdon caught a slant and went 73 yards for the game-tying touchdown against Iowa Wesleyan. Then, after a defensive stop in the final seconds and again in the first possession of overtime, Abingdon made his fifth catch of the day, a 24-yarder, to the one-yard line. He made that one count. Another senior, Latif Adams, plunged in for the game-ending touchdown. They went out like champions today, head coach John Welty said. I don't know why I'm reading that in such a loud voice. Actually, I've talked to John Welty over the phone. Uh, that that's you, you, You're in the ballpark. A little, okay, gra- a little more gravelly. Think of, uh, think of Mike Drass a little bit and then take it again. I was going to say there's no way I'm doing a, a Mike Drass voice right now. They went out like champions today, head coach John Welty said, according to the Westminster website. Chase made big plays. Latif scores the winning touchdown. The guys up front block for them. And the defensive guys made big plays. It puts a cherry on top of their careers, and I'm happy and proud of them all. Teams across our country played their final games or final home games this Saturday. And it's a lasting memory and a bittersweet one, honestly, for, for most of them and the parents and coaches and fans who watched. Not everybody gets the way it gets to end the way those Blue Jays did. And for that, they should be really proud and grateful. Indeed. Keith, my double take for this week comes from the Ohio Athletic Conference. We've had a few double take worthy results in the OAC this season, and I have one that doesn't involve Marietta. Instead, it's Ohio Northern beating Wilmington. That's not a surprise. Uh, by the score of 49-45. Surprise! 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 I looked more closely at this game to make sure it wasn't one that got close in garbage time. And while it was indeed 42-12 at the half. Wilmington got back in the game pretty early in the third quarter, scoring early on, then twice again over the next 10 minutes, and with eight minutes to go in the game, it was a 42-39 contest. Wilmington certainly out of the basement in the OAC for now, but they'll have to show it again next year because uh, standout quarterback Luke Credit is a senior. My double takes came courtesy of the mighty Mona Bell participants Wabash and DePaul. Both won, keeping alive playoff aspirations, however slim, for the rivalry game. But it's never needed those added stakes to make the game what it is. However, both teams come in off by the hair on their chinny-chin-chin wins, which uh, can't hurt. Not by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. Wabash needed a score with 35 seconds left to hold off 3-6 and Allegheny, which had tied the game at 41 with 2.32 to play. And DePaul needed a fourth-quarter touchdown for the game-winning score in a 37-32 win against 0-9 Kenyon. The Lords got 37, 79, and 85-yard touchdown catches from Ian Robertson, who finished with seven catches on the day, behind Ian Bell, who had 11 catches, and Brandon Bird, who had 10. So don't think Kenyon wasn't going all out for its first win. Ultimately, Wabash and DePaul come in off victories, and rivalries are better when you can't immediately tell which team you expect to win. But man, I don't know if Saturday's double-take wins make either side confident going in. Man, I, I tell you, Keith, and I, I've had this thought a couple times already this season, Wabash would be really good right now if B.J. Hammer were the head coach. He was a former assistant. 
left to go take the head coaching job at Allegheny, and if only Eric Rayburn had left Wabash just a few months earlier when Hammer was still on staff. My stat of the week is kind of a random one, but I saw Washington and Lee fumbled nine times versus Bridgewater. The Generals lost five of those nine fumbles as well, but still won 49-21, and here's why. Bridgewater did take over once on the WNL 35 and scored three plays later. They also drove 55 yards after a fumble recovery for the touchdown. But uh, the WNL defense got used to the quick change, and in the second half, they forced two three-and-outs after fumbles, and not coincidentally, the Generals pulled away with 28 unanswered points after halftime for that win. For my stats of the week, I'm staying in the ODAC as I was fascinated by the Shenandoah-Hampton-Sydney box score. Each team had 15 possessions, including a whopping nine in the first half. Fully half of the 30 possessions in the game ended with a score, 13 touchdowns, a field goal, and a safety, and another six ended with turnover on downs. There are about 170 plays run and nearly 900 yards of offense, neither preposterous stats alone in this day and age. Uh, the Tigers won 49-43, and they head into the game, which is what we call the rivalry. They head into that on a uh, high note. Now, when you define the rivalry as the game, is it is that the kind of inflection that's also ascribed to it, or is it you're just doing that because it's capital T, capital G? Uh, I think I, I think the latter. It's it's not it's not the game. It's the game. All right. So quick misses. If you're familiar with the uh, the quick hits column on Friday, we get six panelists together, uh, five regulars and a guest to forecast the weekend, tell you what to keep an eye on, and to make a few predictions. Quick misses is where we uh, take it on the chin for what we uh, picked wrong. China, come on out and get you whooping. Four of the six members of our panel took the Wesley Salisbury game as the game of the week, and it certainly was a tight, hard-fought game. So was Brockport Alfred, pretty much equivalent. If there's an odd game out, a loser in this scenario, it's probably Adam Turr's pick of the Ithaca Union game. But even that one was 6-3 with six minutes to go before ending up 20-3. But Adam also mentioned Union's coach, Jeff Berman, was in his first year, and it's not his first year, it's his second. So if that's our worst game of the week pick, though, that's pretty good. In terms of uh, top 25 teams getting upset, there were ones to choose from. However, I picked uh, Case Western Reserve, so did Adam, and that was a significant flop as the Spartans, as we've mentioned several times now on this podcast, rolled over Westminster. Everyone set the bar too high for the Montclair State rowing game, believe it or not, uh, where the total number of points scored was 16 in the 13-3 Montclair win. But at least it was a fun question. Half the panel also missed on picking conference upsets. Most egregiously, Frank Rossi leaving the safety of the East region to pick Martin Luther over Eureka, where Martin Luther lost 63-26. Keith, I would, if, we were, if the points counted for anything, I would give you an extra point for uh, cold reading that really well. Uh, usually, Keith writes the quick misses and quick hits copy, but just kind of the way the workflow went this week. Um, I wrote it, and I couldn't write it in Keith's voice, but he read it just fine. Uh, on the quick hit side, uh, Ryan Tips and Frank Rossi each picked George Fox to lose, and uh, I picked uh, UW Platteville. That was my easy pick for the week. I try not to pick the easy ones. I figure there are lots of uh, ways to pick obvious picks. Everybody also correctly picked an unranked team that would clinch an automatic bid this week. Uh, not many of those were that much of a stretch. That's why I went out of my way to pick Trine in the MIAA, knowing they'd have to beat Alma and Adrian would have to beat Olivet in order to make that happen. And as for, let's see, as for who would end the season on a high note, ending their season Saturday with a win, everybody got that one but me. Uh, that includes our guest, Patrick Bone, who said 
Northwestern would end the season with a win versus Crown. And uh, Keith nailed the upset of Ithaca beating Union in the Liberty League, while Ryan Tips got McMurray over St. Scholastica, and I mentioned Adrian over Olivet. All in all, a lot of hits. You can see our hits, and you'll probably see our misses too on this upcoming week on the site on Friday morning with our quick hits. Before we get into the interactive portion of this podcast, we have one event coming up this week that uh, we'd like to mention, and that's COSIDA's Membership Recognition Week, which is this week. COSIDA is the College Sports Information Directors of America, and we try to recognize SIDs often because without the sports information directors who are the communications directors of the athletic department, it would be really difficult for us to do what we do here, not just on this podcast, but across the spectrum of d3sports.com sites. So we're here to thank D3 SIDs and recommend that uh, maybe football coaches who are listening do the same. Thank them perhaps by making sure they know in advance about roster number changes or not hassling them over exchanging too deep rosters with your opponent. SIDs really are, uh, the, the, we're asking them to do more now than, than I think we ever have in terms of um, keeping in touch with fans and alumni, keeping the websites updated. You know, it, it was always a job about uh, keeping the statistics and, and being helpful to the media. But I, I think now we just pile so much on them. So I think it's really uh, it's really great that we take a week, um, that COSIDA takes a week to, to recognize the membership. And uh, from all of us here at D3Football.com, we appreciate what you do. Yeah, whenever you see something on social media or a video broadcast or highlights or a fancy Instagram post, that's all coming from a sports information director at the Division Three level. There are not, and often there are just one or two people in that entire department. Every week we throw out there on Sunday nights a reminder that you can ask us a question on Twitter, which we will answer on the podcast. Please avoid the basics like who will win the national title. Uh, we're not going to answer questions like that, but we will answer a question like this one, uh, which is from Gary Habib, who is at Avon63. And he wrote, with Case ranked ahead of W&J, if they both went out and Case is awarded an at-large, do you see first round being matched up and would Case host? First of all, I'm just going to start out by saying this question starts with a fallacy. As we mentioned earlier, Case is ahead of W&J in our poll, which has zero to do with the selection criteria. And then I'll let Keith take the rest of it. Yeah, I think Case Western may be on the road for uh, almost all matchups. 10-0 will definitely get you into the field and will probably help you avoid a short first-round trip to Mount Union. But the committee is under no obligation to overlook your 231st best strength of schedule when choosing who plays who at home. Could I see, say, 9-1 Frostburg State being the last team in the tournament and still hosting 10-0 Case Western Reserve? It's not preposterous. Case and WJ is actually a great first-round matchup because we'd finally get to see it, for one, uh, but also because it plays as a decent 4-5 or 3-6 game well within the 500-mile radius. Definitely possible, and initially I thought I'd answer this question by saying WJ hosts based on the strength of schedule advantage. Uh, WJ opened up with St. John Fisher, which uh, wasn't quite the advantage which it seemed to be uh, way back in week one. But the two teams have almost all common opponents, Case Western Reserve and, and Washington Jefferson. So the committee could literally just put the two schedules side by side and compare. That Carnegie Mellon result then really matters. It's still a little, a little early to sketch out where uh, where Case Western Reserve might 
uh, land because one result anywhere could send dominoes tumbling that move matchups that change who's even in the field, much less who plays who where. Case Western Reserves is in an interesting place uh, if they win Saturday and get in. 10-0 with a low SOS means you could justify putting them just about anywhere, and I mean anywhere in the bracket, but also uh, geographically almost anywhere because Cleveland uh, within is within 500 miles of most of the state of New York, Virginia, Illinois, parts of Wisconsin. Gives the committee plenty of landing spots to consider, though I did measure uh, the distance to Springfield, Wisconsin, Oshkosh, and Wartburg. They're, they're all a bit too far, but there are quite a few places, um, Ohio, Maryland, Delaware, where um, Case Western Reserve could go for a first-round game. Yeah, honestly, the committee should just place Case and W&J together in the first round. The committee tries to avoid conference rematches, but this is just two teams from the same conference. It ain't a rematch. Plus, I, I often seem to see across sports instances where the committee uses irony as a uh, criteria point for setting a first-round matchup. And if the if the pack couldn't set case and w and j on the same field together throughout the first 11 weeks of the season let's let the ncaa do it in week 12 i think that would be a welcome move from the the committee we also had a request to talk about Gallardi trophy candidates but uh, since keith and i don't have access to students grade point averages or know much about their community service uh, this type of speculation is pretty futile on our part yeah the toughest thing would be not knowing who's nominated it's one per school and no guarantee that your school puts up the most obvious candidate or anyone at all. So it's not quite the D3 version of the Heisman chase, though you will 100% hear someone who doesn't really follow say that between now and the awards presentation. Pronunciation 101. Bunavistic. Monon Belt. Bunavistic. Seal. Gallaudet. Hassan. Gallardi. Yeah, that's how you pronounce Gallardi. Not that long ago, about six weeks ago, I had a, a Johnny grad corner me at an area food and drink establishment, shall we say. And, and once he found out who I was, he was telling me about his time up in Collegeville with John Gagliardi. Uh-huh. As my 12-year-old daughter would say, fake fan. But uh, regardless, to send us a Twitter question for the podcast, hit us at, at D3Football anytime between 8 and 10 p.m. or so Eastern time on Sunday night. We'll take the one we deem most interesting. Uh, and congratulations to John Gallardi on his recent 91st birthday. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. Pat, you know that over the years I've spent pretty much every fall Saturday every at a D3 game, somehow watching one otherwise, one way or another, with few exceptions, as have you. I spent a good portion of this past Saturday, however, coaching my daughter's softball team in a playoff tournament. And the reason I bring it up is not because 10U softball has anything to do with Division III college football. But coaching has given me such an appreciation for what the men in charge of our 249 D3 programs do. Of course, we're out there trying to win and it burned me up when we lost the teams I thought we should beat. But I realized I didn't care that much about the wins and losses, at least not for me. I wanted it for the players. You want to see them happy and smiling after games. You want to see their work pay off. So much of coaching became about investing in their success, seeing that that work turn into results. It was about trying to figure out the puzzle of making the entire team function its best, putting the talent where it belongs, but also trying to get the most out of people. I swear to you, I got as much excitement when the least talented player on the roster got a hit or when the quiet girl finally raised her hand and gave the team a we gotta stick together speech than I did out of anything my daughter did or when the most talented players made plays I expected them to make. This was my fourth season doing it and maybe my last, 
but I totally understand now what football coaches mean when they say they feel like they have 85 sons. In my case, it was 10 or 13 daughters. You become so invested in the little successes, the incremental improvements, and then the eureka moments where it finally all comes together for a player or a team. Our team had a season of ups and downs and clashing attitudes, and it all culminated with this 10-run rally in the third place game, which felt like a total fairy tale because everyone finished the season with smiles on their faces. And, and honestly, for weeks, softball has been making me think about how we see D3 football in terms of wins and losses and strength of schedule and playoff positioning. And these coaches, uh, especially many of them who listen, they, they probably see all that, but they see it as much as they see the fifth corner on their roster finally getting into a game and making the correct coverage adjustment. Salute to you coaches and everything you do to make Division Three football an experience for every player on the roster. Man, Keith, I haven't coached in decades since I was a young adult, but I remember coaching kids that age in both basketball and baseball. It is definitely rewarding and a lot of fun and a lot of work. And I'm going to reset the music here. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. And talk about some D3 coaching milestones Saturday. Saw win number 200 for Joe Fincham of Wittenberg and win number 100 for Greg Debelak of Case Western Reserve. We just gave Coach his last game as head coach of Thomas Moore and Barry Streeter will do the same for Gettysburg this Saturday. Well, salute to all those guys for, for really dedicating a good portion of their lives to, to you know sports, but also to, to helping young men grow and become the best they can be. For us here at uh, D3Football.com, this is a huge week for interacting with the fans, generally one of the best for traffic to the site as well. Uh, not every comment is a great one, but some are really worth the time. Shouts out to the poster Alfred Riley for pointing out a Pool C scenario I hadn't even really considered. Del Val loses in the Keystone Cup game to Widener this week. That would clinch the MAC AQ for, uh, for the Pride, but probably lets the Aggies get in as an at-large. That could cost a team like Frostburg State potentially uh, a team that would otherwise be in the field, it's bid. So you playoff hopefuls, not only you have to win your own game, but you have to keep an eye on the other results that matter across the, fi- uh, across the field, really across the nation. Meanwhile, you are not going to be able to keep Cortland from blocking your kicks. On Saturday, Kyle Carlson blocked a Utica punt, and Dakeem Davis returned at 35 yards for a score. It gave Cortland a 24-20 lead with 11-10 in the game, and Cortland went on to win 24-23. But it was Cortland's second blocked kick of the day and the Red Dragons' eighth blocked kick of the season. Four of them PATs, two field goals, and now two punts. Finlandia, that still-growing program in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, uh, beat Trinity Bible earlier in the season for a rare win. They lost a rematch 37-14 this past Saturday by getting outrushed 248-30. A wise person once said that teams evolve over the course of the season. How did you get to be the person who made the Finlandia reference this week? I thought I was the Finlandia correspondent. Uh, I'm not sure how much Finlandia got to evolve this season, though, with just four real games and two exhibition games against club teams. Kind of a lost year for the Lions, but uh, time to regroup, and we'll see those guys next year in the MIAA. Uh, Chapman is in the clubhouse at 6-2 and two, thanks to Occidental, but uh, Occidental did return Myron Claxton's shoes, a.k.a. the shoes, uh, the trophy to rival Whittier this past week since Oxy couldn't field the team to defend them. Yeah, pretty class move. Hey, uh, if this is your last week or if this past week was your last week and this is your last podcast, don't tune out. 
if your team's in the clubhouse. We've got a huge week of playoff coverage ahead, but also the run-up to the biggest rivalry week of the season, including a Secretary's game that's going to get some national shine this week. If you've never got a chance to peek in on our version of uh, Army-Navy between Merchant Marine and Coast Guard, this is the time to do it. It'll be on ESPN3. Uh, these rivalries, that one and some of the other ones in D3, will be some of the coolest things you'll see all season. And remember that even after your team's final games are played, D3Football.com will be around for playoff selection and coverage. All region and all-American teams will be here right up through the Stag Bowl. Um, from the run-up, we'll broadcast the game. We'll do after the game. And uh, we'll do a year in review and uh, and more. So we'll be podcasting weekly until about Christmas. So feel free to check us out, even if your team's already checked out. Yeah, don't check out. There's lots of Division Three football left. But if you are checking out and you're truly checking out, we can't hang on to you. You go over to d3hoops.com. You probably have a basketball team. Fair point. So we got uh, some great games coming up next week. Obviously, uh, we talked about them a little bit. This one in previous weeks, we've been looking forward to this Concordia Moorhead St. John's game because it really looks like it's going to be a uh, an elimination game for an at large bid. Yeah, or or play in game, depending on how you look at it. The winner <laughs> oh, is, sure. is sure take the positive, whatever. <laughs> I mean, the winner is pretty probably assured of a Pool C bid, given the way Pool C uh, has begun to shake out. Looks like um, Concordia Moorhead or St. John's, one with a win over the other, will be as solid a candidate as any in the field. The loser, eight and two, probably uh, not not able to uh, to get in the field. So uh, that's as big as they come. It's basically the playoffs start a week early in uh, in Minnesota. For number 11, Illinois Wesleyan, uh, they are also a very strong Pool C contender, but they have to uh, have to beat visiting Milliken and upstart this season in the CCIW. We talked about Widener and Delaware Valley. That game is at DelVal in Doylestown. Um, the, that's the Keystone Cup rivalry, but it uh, has big implications for folks nationally because if – Widener pulls the upset, and to be honest, it's not it would be that huge of an upset. Um, but if they win that game, uh, they're in as the max automatic qualifier, and DelVal is a fairly strong Pool C team. If if DelVal wins, they're an automatic bid team, opens up a Pool C spot. So if you're Frostburg or Franklin or Marshall or Center, uh, someone like that, you are a big DelVal fan this week. Um, speaking of Frostburg State, uh, they have to win to, to keep their Pool C hopes alive. Uh, they're eight and one. They're at seven and two Salisbury in the Regents Cup game. A uh, couple of interesting games that could also open up a playoff spot for someone with uh, a minor upset. Nine and zero Case Western Reserve is at seven and two Carnegie Mellon, and seven and two MIT is at nine and zero Springfield. Springfield right now looks like they could be in in Pool B. If for some reason they were to lose, they would uh, be right there with the rest of the at-large teams at nine and one and have. A pretty difficult go of it because they don't have a very strong schedule. St. Norbert is at Monmouth in the Midwest Conference title game. And uh, Mountain Union plays John Carroll this week. whole lot less luster on that game this season than there was last season when John Carroll pulled the upset, started a playoff run that would take them all the way to the semifinals. This year it's been pretty much all Mountain Union in the OAC, uh, although John Carroll has rallied a little bit since a tough start. Man, how much... How much has Mountain Union and Mountain Union fans been looking forward to the getting a rematch against these guys? Um, a lot. We'll, I guess we'll see by the margin on Saturday. <laughs> you think if only these teams could have met last year in a third place game. Ooh, I'd watch that. 
Um, you know, those are all the super competitive playoff implication games. But don't forget, week 11 is pretty much a who's who of rivalries in D3. Uh, Merchant Marine at Coast Guard, we mentioned on ESPN3. So you'll get a chance uh, to see that one if if you can. Although every week we have the links to uh, to all the videos on the site. And, and so many games have video broadcasts now. You can pretty much watch anything. RPI at Union in the Dutchman Shoes. Uh, Wabash at DePaul, Monum Bell. 7-1 Amherst at 5-3 Williams in the oldest rivalry in D3. Uh, not far behind is Wesleyan at Trinity. That's a good rivalry between the two. couple of pretty good uh, NESCAC teams in Connecticut. Cortland at Ithaca in the Cortica Jug game. Hampton-Sydney at Randolph-Macon in the game. And a bunch more. Oh, I'm sorry, in the game. And then uh, a bunch more teams playing their closest, most similar, in some cases, most hated opponent, right on down the uh, Wilkes at Kings, which are basically across the street rivals in uh, in Pennsylvania. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 183 for the week of November 6, 2017. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts so that other football fans will find it. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music and all the other music you hear throughout this podcast is by DJ Mentos. You can find him at djmentos.com. Thanks to our guests, Kurt Barth, and sports information directors Brian Moore and Sam Atkinson for their time and assistance on this edition of the show. And, of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? You can join the conversation by registering to post with it registered a real email address. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. We have all sorts of content that is new on D3Football.com each week during the season, so look for the D3Football.com Play of the Week on Mondays, Around the Region columns on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. New regional rankings come out again this Wednesday. We'll do a projected tournament bracket based off of them, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, look for Adam Turr's Around the Nation column on Thursdays and our weekly quick hits on Friday, then our wall-to-wall game coverage on Saturdays, and then uh, Snap Judgments on Sunday, and then, oh, there will be a tournament bracket released on Sunday, and somewhere in there we'll do a new Top 25, and I actually don't know if I'm going to be on the NCAA.com uh, live stream of the announcement. If so, you'll see me, and I'm going to try to get a banner to cover up the junk that's here in the back of the office and including the uh, trombone which is sitting here pretty sad you need, to, you need to end this podcast with a sad trombone sorry listeners the podcast is finally over 